Hi, Kevin. Good to have you on the show. It's good to be here. So uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name's Kevin Sayer. I'm the uh, chairman, president, CEO of Dexcom. I've been involved in the medical device or medical technology industry for 25, 25 years now uh, at, a, at various stops. Uh, before that, I was a CPA in public accounting with Ernst & Young for a long time. And I grew up as a finance person, as a CFO. Uh, but as I've grown over time, my inner creativity and my inner wishes have been unleashed and I now have a job uh, running a business. I am a father of five sons. I uh, didn't have any daughters. I, I got married very young at 23 years old while I was in graduate school and uh, I have seven grandchildren, uh, four boys and three granddaughters. Uh, Dexcom, I've been here for eight years and it's by far and away the most rewarding and successful stop of, of my career. Uh, on a number of fronts, and we can talk about those as as we go through the the interview here. Sure. So that's you know that that that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> so uh, Kevin, could you please uh, speak about like how did you got into finance? Because you've said you were always like fascinated by finance, and you worked as an accountant beforehand. So yeah, share with us your story. So sure, um, I grew up in southeastern Idaho in the northwestern part of the United States in a town, uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, which by San Diego standards is very small. And my father, and well, actually my grandfather before him, owned the Jeep dealership uh, in, in our hometown, which he bought around World War II. And eventually my father had to come home from college to run it when my grandpa became ill. And that was when he was in his early 20s. He met my mother, got married. So my dad had to disrupt his education to go home and go into business. And as a kid, I worked there uh, off and on all the time, doing tasks from washing windows to washing cars. Uh, <laughs> we had a rent-a-car business. I would work there. If somebody quit in the parts department, I would go do parts. Uh, and, and And my father was very committed to all of us. I have one brother, one sister getting educated and encouraged me to learn accounting because he felt accounting skills would be very good. He also made me take typing, which was the only C I ever got in high school because I couldn't type very well at all, but it sure helped. And when I went to university, um, I was going to be a lawyer because uh, that's what everybody was supposed to be. And I <laughs> took one law class and decided I was much better with numbers than I was uh, being a lawyer and, and the way things worked out, the accounting program at my school is nationally ranked. Uh, I was able to get employed very well. They had a very flexible graduate program where I was on scholarship and could also, I taught accounting classes while I was there and, and then left to become a CE, a CPA because I really wanted to learn business and, and I felt that was a good place to learn. Uh, and, that came much more naturally to me than being an attorney and and math is was kind of easy and made sense to me and and so that that just all kind of fell into place and and it and it utilized skills that I had so um how how did you go from there so I spent many years in in public accounting uh and most of my assignments were high growth uh fast growing companies uh, um 
and I would stay with them from when, you know, literally when they started till they went public and many times till they, they, they crashed and burned uh, on, on more than one occasion. And I learned uh, numerous lessons and I, I realized in the middle of that process, I did not want to stay forever, but uh, the right job never came along and I would get offered positions and it just wouldn't work out. So and sorry to interrupt, it, but but um, like the last thirty seconds, the connection was like. Go, did, did it go away? Yeah. Hold on. So so did something, it was something like, happen. Yeah. Are we okay now? Yeah, it, it seems to be like every second it's a bit shaky. So do you have anything? It's this out, but do you have anything open on on your MacBook or? Uh, I will shut everything on my MacBook. Yeah, Hold okay. on. Hold on. Sure, no problem. I got it. Because it was fine first, and then it was a bit shaky. So. Okay, just a minute. Closing yep. that. I'm closing that. I'm closing. That's pretty interesting. It just showed up on here, and I'm not even plugged in to the system. Hmm. Um, is that better? It seems to be better now. I'll I let turned it off out. the other microphone. Okay. So uh, it went on to another microphone. Please continue. So, so. Okay. I will edit this so, out. Any, anyway, I was in, in public accounting and had looked for an opportunity to go do something else. And in, uh, I guess, 1993, uh, one of my mentors, a really good boss of mine, came to me and he said, because uh, the industry had gone through a bunch of mergers and everything, and he came to me and he said, you know what? You ought to go do something else. He goes, you're great here, but I just don't think you'll be happy. And he referred me to a job uh, with a company called Minimed Technologies, which is now Medtronic Diabetes. Uh, and I interviewed for the job there with a guy named Alfred E. Mann, Al Mann, who was the chairman and CEO of the company. And after speaking with him, I decided that they what their plans were wrong, they were going to fail, and I turned him down. And uh, went back, went through another winter in public accounting. And at the end of the winter, my phone rang one day. It was literally the only call I took. And it was Minimed calling back, telling me that all the things I told them were going to go wrong went wrong. And asked me if I would come there and go to work uh, as their chief financial officer. And I accepted the position without even speaking to my wife. I said, you know what? This is good. We're going to go. And, and we trust each other. And... I went home. I said, we're going to move. We lived in Orange County, California. Then we moved up to North Los Angeles. And I had been told several things, and I got there and found a lot of the things I'd been told hadn't happened. Uh, for example, I was told we'd raise some money through a private equity firm, and the fundraising had not happened yet. But I, I wasn't ever nervous, and that transition to the business world rather than the services industry was great for me. And that company, we raised the money. We took the company public in 1995. Um, we uh, grew it from $30 million to $400 million in revenue. Just I'm having Impressive. a here. And then in 2001, Medtronic purchased it. Uh, the valuation when we took it public was around $100 million, and Medtronic purchased it for th th pretty much $3.5 billion. 
So it was a great growth story. Uh, I stayed with Medtronic and worked with them and moved from finance to a general manager role, which mm. I very much enjoyed. But I, it, it How was that transition? Could you please speak I, to I that? I led the transition for the company, and I tried mm. to make that as good as I could. I actually got an award from Medtronic for that. It was after the transition that then I, I, I ran the largest uh, division within the company. And a big company wasn't for me. And I don't think I was for them either. And so we parted How ways. come? I don't like managing up. Mm. And in big companies, in the big companies I've worked with, you have these two sets of people to please. You've got <laughs> a whole bunch above you and a whole bunch below you. And I'm much more comfortable where I can talk to and know anybody that's above me and a company that size where I can get involved. And that was one of the things I learned about myself uh, through that experience. I could be successful there. It, it wasn't intellect or skill or anything. I just, I just enjoy having my fingers on things more than I could uh, at a company that size. Hmm. I, I, and, and learned a bunch there. Uh, again, Al Mann was our chairman and CEO. Terry Gregg uh, was a colleague of mine there. And he'll fit into the story a little bit later. He was our, our president and co-CEO, and he stayed with me through the Medtronic transition, and we left within six months of each other. Uh, but we're very close personal friends, and he greatly plays into this chapter uh, here at Dexcom. Uh, after that, uh, if you want more yeah, career please, story, please, I, please. Uh, I didn't work for a while, and uh, I really thought I would run back to work in six months, and everybody thought I would, but I was really kind of tired. How and, old were you back then? Uh, I was 2001. I was born in 58, 43, I guess. Mm, okay. And uh, I, my, my sons are 37, 36, 31, 30, and then we have a 21, soon-to-be 22-year-old. And I'd worked so long, I decided I'd spend some time with him. I ended up spending more time home than I thought. Uh, and uh, the four-year-old was at preschool one day, and uh, they asked him what his father did. And at the time, I was doing a little consulting and having fun, and he told the preschool that his dad was the fire chief of the Glendale Fire Department. And uh, I went to pick him up, and the preschool teacher said, how long have you been in the department? And I said, well, what department is that? <laughs> said, well, your son says you're chief of the Glendale Fire Department. I said, no, I'm not. I'm, I work out of my house. I'm consulting a bit, and I'm, I'm not really working full-time now. And I got him in the car. I said, his name's Max. I said, Max, why did you tell him I was chief of the fire department? He said, I have to tell them you do something. I can't tell them you play with me all day long. I went home and told my wife. I said, you know what? I think we've got a problem here. And she said, yeah, you need to, you probably, you need to go back to work. And I had been consulting with a, an esoteric laboratory company and it looked like a reasonable opportunity. My, you know, woven deeply in my story is how mentors have influenced me. Uh, mm. The individual who hired me in public accounting was also able to join my board at Minimed. And so I got to associate with him there. And then he was chairman of this esoteric lab company and it brought me in as a consultant. And then I went there as CFO, possibly even going to run the place someday if that's what we chose to do. Um, but it was a public company controlled by a private individual and it was really hard for me. Uh, why? Very, why? Why was it hard for you? 
In the U.S. market, uh, in the lab business, there's two giants. There's Quest and LabCorp. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of other guys. And we were one of the other guys. <laughs> and to not be one of the other guys, we had to make some very bold moves that, in all candor, were more risk than our board was willing to accept. And that's their choice. Uh, but to do right, uh, we had to do that. Uh, my mentor left the board. And we eventually came up with a strategy that our board didn't like to grow and expand the business. Mm. Uh, we had actually come up with some deals to sell the company that didn't quite work. And about the time I left, they sold the company with one of those structures uh, we'd come up with two weeks later. So it ended up it ended up being part of Quest uh, a year or two down the road. It was bought by a private equity firm. But, uh, you know, I, I also learned that service industry, again, I, it's much funner to sell a product than a service. It's much funner for me to manufacture something, have something in my hands than, hmm. than laboratory services. That, that was really hard. Uh, so then I went into another period where, you know, I, I just didn't find the right opportunity. I had many, but I didn't want to leave Los Angeles. Uh, I had kids in high school and the younger one was growing up. And so he, he triggered another uh, employment. We were, we lived on a hill where we lived and I was riding up the hill and he was about, he's 10. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, I've decided what I'm going to do when I grow up. And, and I had a home office. So again, I was on a, a board and consulted. He goes, I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to work from my home, do a few calls every day, hang out with my kids, have a great house. This is going to be wonderful. That sounds like a good life to me. Yeah, I, I repeated that conversation to my wife and she said, you will get a job. And, and I was interviewing with two companies. Ironically, one of them was Dexcom, uh, but we couldn't make that one work. And I was interviewing with a uh, drug looting stent manufacturer that had operations all over the world. It was a very small company, but it was based in Singapore mainly. And I ended up being president of the U.S. operation and then uh, CFO of a publicly traded Singapore company where I learned about Asian financial markets versus U.S. financial markets. And it was What kind of company was it? Drug eluding stents. So mm-hmm. when you have a blockage in your heart, the stents that go up there oh, okay. uh, to open it up, we had some really nice proprieta- proprietary technology. And our initial plan in me joining was to take the company public in the U.S. and create a very valuable entity. But because of – we just didn't have the systems. We had some relationships that were not well documented that probably wouldn't have met the scrutinies of the U.S. market. So we abandoned that one and and turned that company from losing a lot of money to generating quite a bit of cash. And again, I had a wonderful CEO mentor there, a fellow named Mike Klein, who is just the ultimate presence as a leader. He's six foot eight and he had this deep booming voice (laughs) and you'd follow him through anything. Uh, (laughs) He just, he he was wonderful. And uh, at the same time I joined the Dexcom board because my friend Terry Gregg from Minimed had become CEO down here. And I was one of his first calls and biosensors wrapped up for me. And, and after about four years, uh, we decided to shut down everything in the U S at that time I was spending around a week a month in Singapore and a week, a quarter in Europe and the travel. It's a long, it's 17 and a half hours from here to there. Oh, okay. uh, I, I, my body needed a rest. And so uh, I, on the board at Dexcom, 
as you know, boards all go through succession planning and Terry's succession plan always was if he were to get hit by a bus, I would replace him, join the company as a board member. And as biosensors wrapped up, we were at a board meeting in December of 2010. So you were very close together. Yeah, we're very good friends. And, mm. and we can talk more about that later too, if you wish, but sure. uh, we're at the board meeting and the board looked at Terry and said, you know what, you're, I guess in, in 2010, it was 52. He was 62. They said, you're not going to do this forever. He's available. Let's go. And we kind of looked at each other and I took six months to wrap everything up and moved to San Diego and came here uh, from that board position. And our company in 2010 had done about $40 million in revenue and had, we had about 300 employees when I joined and took off from there. And, and I got to work with a guy um, who really every day I came to work, I knew he was only looking out for me. And so, you know, when you have a work relationship, if you're going to disagree with somebody and you know, you're still friends, it makes it a lot easier to disagree yeah. and agree. And I felt if I ever had any tough decisions to make, which I did in the very beginning, I knew he absolutely would support me. So that was great. Uh, he's a much different style leader than I am. Terry is, he's this presence, like he can go into a meeting and never speak. And he still owns the meeting. He's just, he's just uh, such a presence uh, when he goes into a meeting and, and when you work with him. And, and we put together a transition plan for me to replace him that was so good and so seamless. We actually were a, a case study at Wharton Business School on how to do a transition from one CEO to the other. And and how was the transition like? Because I think you weren't managing at a certain point in your life, like 300 employees probably. So uh, no, not as many as we had here, but we had few enough employees here, and the company was small enough that you know three three four hundred people. It was pretty easy for me to walk around and get a feel of what was going on. Okay, and and I would you know when I first started. Remember the administrative functions, IT, finance, uh, mm. those types of things. I already knew those inside, outside, and backwards because I had been a CFO so many times. And I'd had some operational experience. And what I did is I spent all, as much time as I could with the engineers and the manufacturing people. I would just walk in. If I saw a meeting going on, I'd just walk in. Uh, part of my education, I did a lot of computer science studies. Mm. And my favorite meetings, I'd walk into the algorithm meetings with the algorithm engineers as a key part of our technology. And man, I just thought I was awesome because I actually understood what they were talking about uh, <laughs> and, and learned a lot. But that enabled me to develop relationships that made it, I think, easier for me to jump in and manage. Terry built a very good team of people. and I still have hmm. several of those who are here on my team. When I got here, my chief, our chief commercial officer, our chief strategy officer, our, our head of clinical uh, affairs, who's just a genius in that area, our head of manufacturing. Uh, these guys are a very important part of my life and my team here now. So we had good people. And then we've supplemented the team with new ones uh, going forward as we've grown and needed more skills. But I, I, I came in and uh, I made a few tough decisions that, What kind of decisions? We had one, and I would tell you, if you talk to anybody here they would, who was here then, I would, they would tell you it's probably the most important one we've ever made. Um, 
continuous glucose monitoring is a relatively new technology. We did it at Minimed. I'd seen glucose sensors. Medtronic has a competing sensor with ours. Uh, we've grown much faster than them and are a much bigger presence. We had had, when I got to Dexcom, literally the same form factor and performance of a product from, I don't know, 2008 through 2011. And while the product was better than the alternatives, it still was not great. And we were about to run a trial on what was a next generation product. And I talked to a lot of the people. And as I walked around, I kept hearing this new product really isn't that much better than the old one. Yet I'd hear from the engineers, we've got all these new technologies that we can put into future ones. And uh, again, I went to Terry's office and said, I'm, I'm going to shut the thing down. And we're going to start over. We're going to put the new technologies in. And giving credit to my team, they all they all got on board. But I, again, you said you're not necessarily an operating guy. I said, you're going to meet with me every day at 830 in the morning. And we're going to figure out how to do this. And so we had, and one of the guys looked at me and said, what are we going to talk about? And I said, I don't really care. But we are going to get this thing fixed and we're going to get it done. And we took a couple risks that they weren't willing to take in the beginning. But as we talked through it, we decided they were important. And what happened is we stabilized the platform and the technology to whereby we delivered the promise that we always had. You know, somebody with that's on insulin in particular, if you've been around anybody who sticks their finger, it's an awful process. And people to manage their diabetes with finger sticks. And I know, I know some who used to stick their finger 12 or 15 times a day to make sure they didn't give themselves too much insulin or gave themselves the right amount after a meal. With our device and the sensor that's in your body, it measures your glucose values every five minutes. And currently, we give you a reading on the phone. We give patients alerts and alarms that wake them up if they're dangerously low. Uh, and now with our mobile platforms, you can share that data with, and I'll candor, you could be seeing my glucose levels in Germany right now. And if I were asleep and you were awake and I went dangerously low, you could either call me hmm. or you could call, call an ambulance in the U.S. to come and save me. I have numerous emails uh, thanking us for that technology. But what we did back in 2012 is we delivered the promise that the device is accurate enough that, that it'll change your life and you can rely on the information. And the quality of that device, it changed our entire growth trajectory and put us in a much different place. So we went from 40 million to 70 million to over 100 million, and the growth has gone on since then. Because if you think about somebody, you know, type one diabetes never goes away. It's a disease when you're diagnosed, you're mm -hmm. using insulin for the rest of your life. And where we can make a patient's life safer, we can give them the information they need. We don't just give them glucose values, but we give them valuable arrows to tell them how fast they're going up or how fast they're going down. Trend graphs, sharing the data. Uh, the outcomes and the, and the patient experience is so much different than what they had then. But that, that first, and that decision, by the way, the first decision I made as president of Dexcom took our stock from 17 down to six because we had to tell the world that we were going to delay the project and it appeared to the outside as a failure. When you're How are you dealing with the pressure? Because I think it, it didn't bother me at all. Really? Because I knew I not at right all. Thing. No, if, if, if we do the right thing, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, and, and if, if we make the right decision every time and, 
you will find if you talk to anybody about me, I really don't pull many punches with the investment community. Uh, we've had a very open interchange here and we're very truthful and, and, and tell everybody what's going on. Um, I, it, it, you know, I, I, I was in this for a long game, not for a short one. Hmm. And, and I knew the decision would work out and boy, the people who got in at six made a lot of money and did very well. And, and so I, that's never bothered me. Uh, the pressure I feel more than anything else is if is our internal pressures and our goals when we have a goal and we are missing a schedule when we have a financial goal or a revenue goal i feel pressure when the employees are disappointed in us and mm. we've done something that makes their lives hard uh those are the kinds of pressure i feel more than the public if look if if we presented our plans clearly to the public and we exercise our plans and do what we are supposed to they'll be the judge of how well we do it Mm. And and that I've always been able to live with. Um, it's the other things that I, I, I would tell you and, and and our failures that put more pressure on me or and, and our successes. Success sometimes is a lot more pressure than failure. And, 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 and so we've dealt with that too. Mm. And I think it's such an important mindset to have because I think nowadays so, so many people are thinking short term and um, how they can win in the short term of, or instead of really taking the long term view like you've did. Okay, this uh, might be, like, this might hurt us in the short term, but long term, this will be like one million times better. So That's uh, right. No, I, and we try and look at everything long term but it, it is hard as a u.s public company uh, mm. i mean the greatest blessing i could ever have running this company is to do away with quarterly reporting if we didn't have to tell everybody every three months what we did <laughs> and we could just tell you by the end of the year this is what you'll see i would be absolutely thrilled and, and another thing that's interesting about our business you know our two, our biggest competitors are large companies so diabetes is a teeny weeny segment of what they do This is all we do. Hmm. So we explain everything that goes on every all the time to the investment community. We don't have a lot of ability. I, I can't hide behind uh, 10 other business lines or a <laughs> trillion dollar balance sheet like <laughs> Apple or, or Google or anything. So it, 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 those are the pressures. But, but still, I, this has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done by a long ways. Hmm. So... Um, If you are looking back on your career, like uh, Kevin, what have been your worst moments in your career or in your life? And what have been the best moments, so to speak? Well, I so, think the worst uh, is easy. Uh, my uh, second son got bone cancer when he was 10. Oh, shit. And he, he's alive and he's in it. Yeah, he's 35. He'll be 36 in March. He uh, is an attorney here at Dexcom, actually. But when we moved to take the job at Minimed, literally a month after moving, uh, he was limping profusely coming home from school and my wife took him to the doctor and the doctor's words to her, this is bad and it could be horrible. And he ended up with a condition called osteosarcoma and his leg was rebuilt uh, over and over again. He has a metal shin, a metal femur, artificial knee, and, and now he has he's had part of his hip replaced as well. And so going through that with him and I never believed that he was going to die. We always felt 
I mean, yeah, it looms, but hmm. we felt we had the best therapy ever, and we really did uh, up in Los Angeles at UCLA and at Cedar sinai But the the pressure of that, uh, there's nothing close. Um, how were you dealing with the situation? Well, how, how did you I was in the middle it? of taking MiniMed Public at the same time. <laughs> so you were so pretty I, I just have this, I have this amazing wife, and mm. we are very able in our relationship to look at whatever the problem is and figure out how we divide it up. And mm. there are, and during this time, she did the day-to-day. For example, she'd drive him to his chemo treatments. I would do it on weekends. Uh, we would do things with the boys that were a little different. And, and we just survived. Mm. Uh, and, 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 but that's still been, you know, he, he's had, I don't know, five or six surgeries. He lost part of his hearing because of it. So that was hard. That was hard. Uh, and I would tell you the hardest things for me have never been career-wise. It's always been family. Uh, and kids go through things. I've had children deal with all the issues that you can think about as far as mental health and wild successes and wild difficulties. And, and sometimes dad casts a big shadow, which some have had a hard time dealing with, but not forever. We've worked through that. Uh, going through your kids' failures is much tougher than business <laughs> or your kids' hardships. Hmm. Um, as far as thrilling things, I'd say this company, outside of my family, certainly has been the, the most rewarding thing. I can't even, I can't even pick a milestone. The way one of my guys described it is, you know, we took, we're the first medical device ever to go straight to a phone hmm. of, of this class. And that was kind of when we started, you know, if we can just get the thing to the phone, we're done. We can quit. Somebody will buy our company and we'll be done. And that's what happens in medical devices. And that's what everybody believed when I got here because we'd sold the Minimed business. I'd been part of selling the laboratory company. And that was the rumor. Kevin's come here to clean this up and he and Terry are going to flip it. Mm. And, and we figured, you know, you assume in medical devices that what you, it's what usually happens. But we kept growing and we kept growing. And to Terry's credit, he had a bunch of board members when I was on the board who thought that was going to be our strategy. And those guys are no longer on our board. Uh, hmm. He replaced them and we grew the business to grow. But every milestone we have here, you know, getting the product to the phone, getting new generations of technology approved, watching the company grow, the letters from the patients, the relationships with the employees, all those things are just absolutely meaningful. And they'll be something I'll never forget. Hmm. So basically what you're saying here is that um, the hardships in your life were always personal and not really business things. And um, yeah. Well, let's be clear. I obsess about our business. And <laughs> my wife would tell you I wake up at four in the morning and talk to myself about business issues. <laughs> and I obsess with them. But as far as them really being the hardships no my biggest hardships have always been or the things that i remember the most and worry about the most hmm. or what's going on with the boys and 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 that's okay so um because i think for everybody because quite a few uh, people here who are listening to this are also entrepreneurs so are also maybe going through tough times like what would you tell them what well, would be your advice to them so i will tell you 
I, I, and I, I will talk about the difference between me and your entrepreneur friends. Yeah. Uh, I have never put myself in a position where my personal finances were at risk. I have always worked for companies where there were other people who funded them. I've never personally taken that risk. And I so admire anybody who can and anybody who does. And, 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 and so to those people, you know, I, I give them a salute because I'll, I'll never, speak to, to business people in general, so. Yeah, to business people in general who take the risk and go out on their own more power to them. I, I, I have been comfortable raising money and playing in public markets or working in public markets and dealing with, with entities like that. So the first thing you got to do is figure out where you're comfortable and where you're good. Remember I said earlier, the big company and managing up and all the structure. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't love that. And I, and I'm not an inventor. So going, I guess I could invent something if I wanted to, but that has not been my strength. Business has been more my strength. And so if you're an entrepreneur, figure out what it is you're really good at and ask yourself one question. And I was quoted by this in a recent article. What problem are you solving? Hmm. If you're an entrepreneur, if you can't answer the question, what problem do I solve? There's no sense in going that way. You have to do something that, that, that you're solving a problem of some kind. It can be a simple problem. It can be there's no Gatorade stand on the street corner and everybody needs Gatorade and that's okay. But you have to solve a problem to have a business. And if you look at Dexcom, again, the key to our success is we solve a really serious problem for people. And, and, and that's why we've grown. So I, I would look at that. The other thing, and, and look, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs succeed and fail. And I would tell you, those who have good businesses who fail, in most cases, it's because they don't raise enough money. Mm. And they're reluctant to liquidate themselves or dilute themselves. But if you can find the right advisors and take money from the right people who can help you grow and develop your business and get the right skill sets, 30% of a $100 million company is a lot better than 100% of a $3 million company. And, and, I, and I know entrepreneurs have a hard time with that sometimes. But if you find the right partners, the right mentors, the right people to take money from, I would tell you that's a very good thing. But if you're not solving a basic problem, then start something different. So, so let, let, let's speak about that because um, I think quite a few people are also interested in, in raising uh, money. For instance, there's like a huge trend in Silicon Valley where people like uh, are looking for venture capitalists and so on and so forth. So um, what would you tell to everybody who is listening to this, who is interested in raising money or taking a, 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 a company public and so on and so forth? Well, going public is a, a little bit different story. Uh, yeah. If you're going to go public, you have to have board members, management, pedigree, relationships. And I think those relationships are very, very critical. Mm -hmm. You have to have a leg to stand on as a public company. Again, I'll go back to the problem that I solve. I'm going to solve this problem and I'm going to solve it better than somebody else. And you have to have a really good story to tell. For example, when we were at Minimed, uh, I can go back to that public offering because I led that one. Mm -hmm. There was a diabetes control and complication trial in, in, in the United States that was the most important diabetes study forever at the time. And the results of the study was if you take multiple shots a day or use an insulin pump to deliver insulin multiple times a day, you greatly reduce the risks of further complications from diabetes. 
Well, we manufactured an insulin pump that enabled those multiple insulin doses per day. And it was a very easy story to tell and communicate and people could understand it. And so we were able to go public. We had good investors. We had a good board. We put a very strong board together to guide us through the process. And, and we were successful at it. Our story also was very congruent. We, at that time, we didn't go public as a loss leader. We made a little bit of money from the very beginning. And we always managed our profitability uh, while we continued to invest in the business. So you've got to have a thesis statement. Hmm. Uh, and our statement there was we are going to grow uh, responsibly, but we are going to invest in this business because it's high growth. That's been our message at Dexcom. Uh, if you look at our financial statements, our P&L, uh, if you're a business school person, they scratch their head and go, how can this company be worth so much when they're not making a whole bunch of money? Well, we have turned around and invested many, many of our dollars in research uh, to come up with the products that will service for the next several years. Uh, and, and because of our growth and our success, our investors have been willing to, uh, to run on that growth story with us. So you have to have a thesis. You, you, need, you need the right investors. I think you need to be careful if you're going to be a public company, that you really understand what that and, means. And could you, sorry to interrupt, but could you please unpack for our listeners, like, why is it so important to have the right investors? Because I think a lot of people just want to, to uh, have like an, an investor and doesn't matter who it is. So yeah, could you please unpack that Boy. for us? Sure. And I can, again, go back to my experiences, uh, particularly what I saw in public accounting and at many Please. In Minimed in particular, when we did our private fundraising, we took it from a, a, a mezzanine financing firm out of New York that was run by the former vice chairman of, of Smith Barney, who is the most ethical, honest, experienced mentor one could ever have. And with his guidance and direction, he helped corral us. Uh, Al Mann, was a, he was a crazy entrepreneur. There's nothing Al would not try because he was so smart. He could think of most anything. And it was our job to manage his thoughts into financial results and make sure we didn't try too much. And it's pretty much a full-time job for Terry, myself, and, and our general counsel. Well, getting a person with, with Bill Grant, this guy, fellow's name was Bill Grant, with his credibility, his leadership, and his mentorship, he was believable. And he could tell us, don't do that or do this. And he would help us uh, with those moments. If you've never been a public company, you can ruin your company without knowing it very easily and very innocently by the messages you communicate, the way you handle an earnings call, the press releases you do, mm. the way you write an annual report. And having money like that to help you and that is patient with you is important. The other thing is patience. Uh, you need to make sure your investors are in it for the long haul too. And, and when you get an investor who wants out in two years or wants to go public in two years, you might make a bad decision just so that investor gets out. So your investors have to match uh, what you want to do. Hmm. And if you get the right ones, they'll have relationships to introduce you to the proper next level financing partners who can help you do that. Uh, and as far as venture capitalists, I think the key there is to find out which ones invest in your industry. Uh, I have mm. seen numerous people chase venture capital from the leading firms in Silicon Valley. And sometimes these people don't ever invest in a retailer mm. or an online 
gaming company or you know you know what i'm saying yeah don't go to a med tech guy for for a gaming company investment know your audience understand what investments they've made have somebody who's maturely been through that process walk you through it and be willing to spend money to have Mm. them walk you through it Uh, one of my sons went to business school in michigan and he called us up as he was applying for business schools and said we've got to hire me a coach to fill out my applications. And I said, but I know how to fill out applications. He goes, no, no. He goes, dad, this is science. Trust me. I need somebody with some experience. So we helped him with that and it worked out wonderfully. Had he, he may have got in if he filled him out on his own, but his results were much stronger with the help and coaching that he had. So having somebody who's been through it is, is a good idea. Hmm. So, um, Kevin, let's switch gears here because I think you've mentioned several times the importance of a mentorship and role models in your life. And um, my life was also changed by certain books or certain people at a certain point in my life. And, um, yeah, I think everybody would love to hear your views on, on mentorships and finding the right people to work with. And, yeah, could you please speak to that? Absolutely. Uh, And I would tell you, um, it started early for me. I can give you characteristics of all my mentors. Please, please. My first one absolutely was my father um, Hmm. going to work with him. And his characteristics are are, are numerous, but probably the best one as a boss, my dad can see the good in everybody. So he can work with somebody who I would look at and go – that guy's a loser. Why is that guy here? And he would say, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what this person does. Why he's here. He could find the good in everybody that worked with him. And, and, and that was good. The other thing that he was great at, and it's something that I've used over the course of my career and not so much anymore. Our company has too many people. My father walked around all the time and talked to everybody, all the employees at all the levels. And you learn what's going on when you talk to people. You don't learn what's going on when you're sitting in your office. Mm. Now I have, we have almost 5,000 people between our full-timers and our temporary workforce. And obviously, I can't go talk to them all. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I did early in my time here at Dexcom, and it served very valuable. Um, I had professors who helped me greatly in college. And one of the best things about a good mentor is one who will tell you to stop. Uh, my first mentor in college talked me out of going and get a, P- a PhD because I taught while I was in graduate school and I thought I was the greatest teacher in the world and I loved it. I loved being around, but young people. And I said, you know what? I think I'll apply to PhD programs. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, you're too competitive for that. Stop, go work and figure out if you want to do that later. I had another professor who was a dear mentor. I was looking at a, another opportunity while I was in public accounting. I was pretty sure I was going to take it. And this in, entrepreneur was a good friend of my professor. So I called my professor and said, I'm going to go to work for this guy who says he's your best buddy. He's going to pay me all this money. It's going to be great. And literally at midnight, he called me up. He said, you can't work for him. He goes, he may be my friend, but he's not above board and you'll get yourself in trouble. And it wasn't but a year later that that guy was in trouble. And so a good mentor will tell you to stop. Hmm. I spoke to the one mentor in public accounting who uh, 
who told me I needed to go do something else. I will always appreciate that. My other mentor in public accounting was the gentleman I took to my, our board at Minimed with me, who I've had a lifelong relationship. And he, he was just so steady, uh, never appeared to not be calm, treated everybody with respect. Uh, he was great to watch. I've talked a bit about Al Mann, uh, the, the entrepreneurship of him. And, and, and literally, if you went to him and said, I think we can buy Google, he would try. <laughs> he literally would try nothing no task was too big for al sometimes it led to he sounds things. like a great guy but it was great it was yeah. great it was absolutely great and i learned from the mistakes there too you know you learn from those every bit as much um i've talked a bit about terry his presence uh the opportunities he gave me the transition uh, that we worked out here and just his support, uh, my, my CEO that I worked with at, at BioCenters, I, I said his name's Mike Klein, six foot eight. Mm. Uh, he recently passed away. Uh, but Mike's best lesson for me was he, uh, and I've always applied this, but I think he summed it up better than I did. You never ask people to do something you won't do yourself. So I'll give you an example for him. Our company was scattered all over the world, but most of the operations were in Singapore. And I wasn't willing to move there as CFO and he'd become CEO and he'd been CEO for about a month. He came to my office in the U S he said, I think I've got to move to Singapore. I can't run this company from over here. I got to go do that. And I looked at him. I said, really? And he said, yeah. And he got on a plane and he moved and he did what was right by the company and put himself through a lot of personal difficulty And living in Singapore versus Southern California is a lot different. Yeah. And his wife moved over there with him, and 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 he took took made the hard choices uh, by being there. Literally turned a lot of the company around, a lot of our culture around. So you know that was Mike's mentorship. But you have these figures, and if you watch them, you learn from everything. You you learn from the slightest things. You learn the mannerisms. You learn how to conduct a meeting. You also learn you can't be them. So again, I'll go back to Terry. Terry's this larger than life presence. I am not, but I have my own strengths and, and he could see those. I've, I've tried to be Terry a couple of times in my life. It doesn't work. Yeah. So no, you have to have those and, and you need them outside of, of work as well. Uh, in, in your church infrastructure where I, you know, I, uh, your friends, whatever, you need people like that and you need friends and people who will tell you when you're headed down the wrong path hmm. and who can show you the right one. Yeah. And I think it's so important because um, I think a lot of people are limiting themselves when they are um, having the wrong friends or having the wrong people around them. And I think it really does a disservice to, to, to yourself. If you're surrounding yourself with the wrong people, I think, um, It is really, really, uh, you, you're making your, your your life harder than it should be probably. Yeah. So, and I, and I would tell you the best mentor for me has always been yeah. my wife. Mm. Uh, that partnership we have is more important above all others. A, the support. B, again, the ability to say, we need to stop this. There's been a couple times in my life where she has said, you're a bit obsessed here. It's time to wind down. You need to do something else or... 
she's also uh, the laboratory job, for example. My commute at that job was five minutes. And she said to me one day, your commute's five minutes and you're more miserable than I've ever seen you in your entire life. You need to be done with this. You've got to have people in your life who will tell you when you're out of balance mm. or help you do something remarkable. And, and so that's, that's obviously the most important one for me. Yeah, and I think it's so important because I think, like you've mentioned, it helps you so much because when you're like always working all the time, you're busy all the time, you don't really have time to think and getting assertive. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So um, could you please speak about um, what do you think makes, what are the key differences of a business who is making like 1 million, 5 million or 10 million a year to a business who's making like 50 million or 100 million or even larger numbers a year? Like what do you think are the common mistakes that small business owners do? And um, yeah, well, what, what are the key differences? I, I, I can tell you in, in a nutshell, because um, mm. I've experienced it here. There's a skill set that is really good at getting you from zero to 10 million and maybe from 10 to 50 and 50 to 150 and 150 to four or 500 and on up the line. And the most common mistake is not to recognize that maybe the things you did to go from one to 10 million aren't applicable. A perfect example I can give you here. We survived in the early days and particularly when I came on board by being very frugal uh, in a number of fronts. While we spent a lot of money on our research and we were tried to be fair with our employees as best as we could, if there was a low-cost alternative, we always took it. And that mm. mentality saved us from a capital structure perspective and always made sure we had enough money. But when you're growing 40%, and this year we're growing, you know, so far we publicly reported our growth is above 40% on a billion-dollar revenue base last year. Making the prudent financial decision when you have resources may not be the right one while you're scaling. And so that mentality that saved you when you had no money mm. might be the mentality that kills you when you're bigger. And so you've got to recognize that the skill sets are different. On the commercial side, the skill set of running a worldwide sales organization versus a localized organization, many people can't do both. And it's probably that local organization that got you started. You have to, uh, my guy can, our guy is capable of, he, he's been a wonderful business partner for me. And that's been very fortunate. But I've been in other companies where we've outgrew the commercial part of the business as you go global. And, and so you've got to recognize that businesses change. And as businesses change, you probably need to change some of your people. Not all of them. Hmm. Some can grow with you. But you've got to be cognizant of that fact. And that's really hard when you're an entrepreneur and you're successful because these people took you along for the ride. You're there because of their hard work, not necessarily because of your genius, but you wake up one day and, and you need somebody that's got a skill set above that. And, and so I'd say that's the most common mistake. That people um, in the 1 million, 5 million, and 10 million a year mark, they tend to save And um, if you want to expand your business, you really need to spend your money sometimes. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, you just need to understand the skills of people don't necessarily translate as your business grows. Hmm. The structure of your company 
doesn't necessarily translate as your business grows. You know, uh, I have this pyramid that I've drawn on my bulletin board or my whiteboard numerous times. In technology in particular, you start off at the top of the, the triangles technology. You've got to make technology. Then once when you make technology, you invest in selling it. We've got to sell this thing. Then you wake up and say, I need to manufacture it better and cheaper. And then all the other things like finance, information systems, human resources, all the service things you've not paid any attention to because you had to do the other three. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and the money kind of filters down. So recognizing when to make the investments and the other parts of your business and making the investments on those things, it, it's hard. And it's hard as you grow. It's hard to wake up and say, I'm $100 million in sales. And I think I would need to spend $10 million on an information system because we're going to get bigger. Well, the payoff's not immediate. Hmm. And it's difficult. Then you shop for a bargain because that's how you got to 100 million in revenues. And you got a system that doesn't work. And and so those are the types of, uh, look, I've done some of those mistakes. (laughs) I'm speaking from perfect personal experience. Uh, And, and, and so this is managing growth. It it requires making some tough decisions. Hmm. So um, could you please speak about like, what do you think are some business principles on scaling a business, growing a business, hiring, firing, leadership, like uh, management, like what are a few principles or a few ideas that you have that you think most people aren't aware of and never heard about? Oh, I don't know if I have anything that, that people haven't heard about. I think the concept I talked to you earlier about, uh, the concepts I learned from my father as far as finding good in everybody Hmm. serves you very well as a leader. If you can find their strengths and what they're good at and channel people in that direction, that's a key to success and happy people. Hmm. Um, I think uh, your people knowing about your commitment and that you're committed and you, you will do whatever you ask them serves you very, very well as a leader. I, I find, uh, you know, uh, and, and now my office is in a tower. We're so big, we're not all together anymore. We've had to move. But I find somebody who just sits in the tower and calls shots and let everybody takes the arrows. I don't like that form of leadership, and I and I don't think that is good. Um, I think, you know what, as I've read books and as I've studied and as I've been with this team, I will tell you being willing to accept criticism hmm. is critical. You, you can't. You're, you're not always right and you're not always perfect and you can always be better. And nobody gets better by being told how great they are all the time. And, and so, and, and you know, I'll go back to my relationship with Terry. When Terry was angry, we all knew. And I would talk to these guys because again, he's an intimidating presence. When Terry's mad at you, you want to crawl under a table. But I tell the guys, I said, step back and listen to what he said. Yeah. 70% of it, 50% of it, maybe 90% of it is angry bluster. But there is a nugget in there that you need to listen to. Hmm. There's a nugget in there that's going to make you better. And so just learn learn that you're not perfect and, and hmm. learn to take criticism from people. Hmm. I, I guess, you know, the other one, uh, listening to uh, – got to stop this. Yeah, no problem. You know, uh, having – having really smart people around you, having smarter people than you around you. 
Hmm. Uh, don't be bashful about hiring people better than you. I guarantee you there are numerous people in these buildings smarter than me and, and who I listen to all the time and, and who I trust. And you've got to trust them. Uh, you don't know everything, nor do they. And sometimes, yeah, you may override them. But goodness, if somebody's taken you on the successful journey we have at Dexcom, if at Dexcom, you need to listen to and, and, and trust those people. Hmm. I, I think one of the things that I'm not as good at as I would like to be is encouraging failure. Look, it's okay to fail. Guys, let's fail and fail quickly and move on. Uh, we're perfectionists here, and you'll see it in everything you read about our company. We're taking care of people who have type 1 diabetes who depend on this device for their very livelihood. So you kind of have to demand perfection. And, and I sometimes create a culture where people are afraid to come tell me that, hey, this is not working. Mm. They'll spend six months trying to fix a problem that if they'd have told me six months ago, Your, our solution isn't working, let's go another direction, we'd have probably been better off. And, and so I've been given that feedback by my team uh, that, that it, it's okay. And, and as much as you tell somebody it's okay, they still don't believe you. <laughs> uh, but, but I think encouraging fast failure, um, all these things are, are, are general principles and things that I, that I live by. I guess, you know, the last one, uh, if you can figure out, again, what you're good at hmm. and what you're not. So my, my kids have encouraged me to write a, a stupid book when I'm all done about all my sayings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which are not always the best. Um, when they were teenagers, for example, I would tell them when they were starting to date, I said, I just need you to understand something. If that girl's difficult now, it's going to get worse. <laughs> and if That's I had a advice, daughter, in all fairness, I would tell them the same thing. <laughs> so they call that my psycho is forever talk. Would you please make that uh, one of your chapters? Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, some of those some of those things uh, resonate true in our family uh, forever and, and always will. But those principles are, are, are good ones. Um, yeah. So uh, Kevin, at the end, I always ask every guest of mine, five questions, but um, before I ask those, what would you tell to everybody who is listening to this right now on business, leadership, management, and all, on, on all of those different topics that we've talked about today? Like, what would you tell them at this point in our conversation? What would be your best advice for them? I've, I've given a lot of advice yeah. <laughs> during this conversation. Very, yeah, a ton, I don't know that I have much left. Uh, <laughs> I guess the only thing... Anything maybe you that, want that to I emphasize. Think you can hear, well, yeah, I will. i emphasize one other thing. You need a passion for what you do. Hmm. Uh, you absolutely need a passion. And it doesn't matter what it is. My father was as thrilled about the car business as I am about medical technology and everybody knows it. You've got to be passionate. And if you're in a business, if you're an entrepreneur or a leader, and you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're probably miserable. Or you're not as happy as you should be. Passion can't be faked. So that, I guess that would be my last piece. That, again, that's why I love this company. Everyone. Yeah. I would say we all share that. 
yeah. more than anything. And I guess the last one, uh, you need to be curious. Hmm. Don't, don't not ask questions. Uh, there's always, if you're not curious about what other people do in your company and you don't ask questions, you're going to miss out on, on all sorts of things and on relationships. And I talked earlier about how I'd walk into engineering meetings. I assure you many times I have no idea what they're talking about, but <laughs> it is so fun to listen and see if I can figure something out that they don't. I wear our product frequently. I don't have diabetes. I wear glucose sensors to see what I can learn about what they've designed or what my experience is or what have you to see what one of our customers would see or what. And we all do that on this management team. We all wear these things to learn and see what's going on. So all, all those pieces uh, are good. So, uh, Kevin, could you please tell everybody, where can they find uh, Dexacom? Where can they find you on social media and so on and so forth? I, I, I do not have a large social media presence, but Dexcom, our stock symbol is DXCM. And Dexcom.com is our website. You can learn all about our products. You learn about our patients. Uh, we have one of our most wonderful programs for marketing. We have made a decision that that our patients are, are going to be our voice. And we have a Dexcom Warrior program, for example, where our patients reach out to others or we use them. We use real people in our ads, by and large, uh, people who use our product. Their stories are magnificent. So Dexcom.com, you can learn all about us. And our, our stock symbol is DXCM. You can see how our companies perform. Like I said, we're worth about you know, three, $400 million after I made my first decision to delay a product launch and the company's worth over 14 billion today. So it has been a, a great ride for us and for our investors both. So uh, Kevin, the first out of the five question is, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Okay, uh, I'd start off with the Bible. I've gone to church my whole life, religious readings and the principles taught that way, the do's and don'ts. And that's certainly how I try and live my own life. And, and the stories actually are fabulous. If you need a story to share with the child or somebody. Um, so I would say that would be first. I would say the second thing that, that as a child, believe it or not, what I loved to read was, was biographies. Hmm. I read about presidents. I read about, athletes. I, I just, I read biographies all the time. Uh, I, I read everything from Alexander the Great to Abraham Lincoln to Red Grange, the football player. I, I could not absorb enough biographies and I love learning about the people that I read about. And I'd actually just read the same ones over and over again. Um, uh, I started reading about presidents in the U.S. when I was five. My grandmother had a presidents book at her house and we would go through all the presidents. And I would say the last, certainly I have read a lot of books as I traveled over the past several years that have influenced me as a dad and me as a manager. Um, mm. uh, I, I love Malcolm Gladwell's writings. I, I love his books. They, some of it rings very true to me. Some of it, maybe not so much. I just finished Don't Talk to Strangers, his new book. And I found that fascinating. I love David and Goliath, that one. Um, But his books, other business books uh, of that nature, and uh, I've been through a couple episodes with with some of my kids where I've I've read some self reflection books. 
Mm. How do I be a better listener in, in particular? That was my lesson last year. I learned that, that I typically listen to respond rather than to hear. <laughs> and read about that in a book. So I break them into categories, you know, certainly the Bible and religious books, all the biographies of the wonderful people that that I've studied, because I think you learn. A few that come to mind right now? Oh, uh, certainly Lincoln, several Lincoln books uh, when I was a kid, yeah. um, in, in particular. And, and, and again, about a couple athletes, because when I was young, I thought I was going to be that, and I, I didn't have to be. But, but their struggles, the struggles athletes go through to become the perfect physical, you know, the skills they develop. While there's always natural talent, they go through a lot. Uh, so those, yep. I talk about Gladwell's books and, and, you know, books of that genre. I very much enjoy the quick read while I travel and Got bring it. some of that back with me. So um, the second question is, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Okay. This is kind of embarrassing. Uh, I am not an Academy Award movie connoisseur. I go to movies to for comedy. I love comedy. So, I, for example, my children tell you I've watched Caddyshack a hundred times. Uh, and I can quote all the lines from Caddyshack to the point where no one will watch it with me anymore because I love golf. And, and I just found that so funny. So I, I, I love comedies of that genre. The other thing I love in movies is I love characters that I could never be. So, for example, when my 10-year-old had bone cancer, you're sitting in a chemo ward all day long and you're kind of, it's kind of gloomy and depressing. And he said one day, he said to me, Dad, we got to do something different. I want to watch all the Die Hard movies. So I walked across the street. I bought the three VCR because it's a long time ago, the three recordings. Watching Bruce Willis as the guy in Die Hard, again, that's somebody I'll never be. I love characters like that and, 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 and movies like that. Uh, and, you know, comedies, action movies. Uh, and my criteria for most movies, I go to movies to escape. Either I want to laugh all the time or we need hot cars, hot people, and guns. And if we have that, <laughs> I, I, I love it. I don't go to movies to learn. I go to movies to relax. <laughs> so uh the third question is um what is the most what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory that i have bought yep in Ooh. recent memory what do i use all the time okay i've been a techie geek forever um and so If I had to pick one, man, I buy all sorts of tech stuff that I use or I don't. None of it necessarily changes my life. Um, it doesn't have to change your life. Like people um, mentioned, for instance, they've mentioned Amazon Prime or they've mentioned Uber Eats or Uber or apps or like. Amazon, you know what? Amazon, I, I use Amazon pretty regularly to shop. I would say that's been very useful for me. I actually, you know what? I like my Kindle mm. because I don't want to get out a computer or an iPad or something where I check in with reality when I read. I want to take a book and just read it and mm. not be bothered. So my Kindle is very useful for me as a gadget. And I can, you got 20 books in your briefcase, not just one thick one. 
Is it like a particular Kindle that you are using, or no? I just just, just a standard just one. Just a standard one. Yeah. Uh, one that yeah, and one that what if I'm outside, I can I can read that. Got it. So um, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their career, family life, relationships, time, travel. So speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. I, I would say I spoke earlier about uh, some of the travails I've been through with some of my kids. And, and I would tell you, I learned a lot about myself over the past year of things that I've done that I can do better uh, as a parent. Uh, for example, I talked about listening more and, and, and listening. I listen to, I'm in the business world. When somebody's asking me a question, my job is to formulate a perfect answer. Well, when you're dealing with your son, or daughter who's struggling, that's not what you're supposed to hear. Hmm. You're supposed to hear their struggles. I think my other best realization was brought to my attention by my team here and also by one of my kids. We went through a 360 review process, and one of the realizations that they shared with me is you don't ever celebrate our wins, that we do something great, and you go, great, that's your job. Let's go do the next one. So I called one of my sons, and I said, Will you tell me, tell me how I deal with you with respect to your accomplishments? He goes, yeah, it's very simple. You call me up and you say, how are you doing in school? And I say, I'm getting A's and da-da-da-da. And you say, why aren't you getting an A in that class? You don't ever say, congrats. And, and I, I don't celebrate learning to celebrate and acknowledge wins, uh, listening better. Uh, and my other self-realization, and you've already experienced this on the podcast, Oftentimes, I think and talk at the same time, hmm. and and therefore I will be sitting in a meeting at work, where I'll be just giving thoughts, and somebody not at my levels in there taking notes, and I've soon started a project that we really didn't need. I've I've had to learn to to shut up a little bit more, uh, to talk a little less, and my last realization. You know, my, my mom was only 20 when I was born. My grandfather was 40. My parents, I've watched their health. It had been a tough year for them. And I've learned a lot, good and bad, watching them go through this. Uh, aging's aging's going to be a little tougher than we all plan on. And, uh, and I, uh, I've had to be a better son. I've tried to be, and I've learned a lot. Uh, about that too. So uh, yeah, there've been a lot of good self-realizations the past couple of years. So uh, Kevin, the last question for the day is what would you tell your 20 year old self? <laughs> my 20 year old self was living in Paris on a mission for my church, trying to learn in Paris. And I was in Paris, France and, <laughs> and uh, my 20 year old self, I would tell it's going to be okay. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, a, a lot of hard work. I would, I would also tell my 20 year old self to be patient. Uh, I was not very patient as a young man and I was not very patient in my early career. And so the best advice I give myself in twenties, be patient. Got it. So, uh, Karen, 
Thank you so, so much for sharing your story, your vulnerability, your advice on business, uh, leadership, management, and all those different things. And yeah, I think this was a great episode. So thank you so much. I hope much. so. But thank you for taking the time. We appreciate your interest. And again, our company, Dexcom.com, I'm much more comfortable talking about our company than I am talking about me. Uh, please go look at our website. This is a remarkable experience and company and what we do is it, it, it just the stories that that i get from people would just blow you away hardy it's been it's been wonderful so thank you for taking the time and showing the interest yeah thank you so much and bye-bye bye-bye thank you for listening if you like this episode please rate review and subscribe also make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.